Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Carol Herlicka, and she is publishing a book within the next month. Title of the book is Finding David, an American Wife Betrayed by Her Government. And it's about the loss of her husband in Vietnam many, many decades ago now. But uh, he went missing on May 18th, 1965. But it's a very detailed book, and it really shows how difficult it is to get answers from such a monolithic government like the U.S. government. But she can talk more about that. So, Carol, are you there? I'm here. Thank you. Uh, awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. Can you talk about all of, I mean, this is kind of like a life's work, your experiences with uh, your husband. Can you talk about how you guys met and his progression through the U.S. Air Force? Right. Uh, I met uh, David through a high school friend, and he set us up on a blind date. And uh, I started dating David when I was 16, and David was 22. And at the time, you know, I thought, my gosh, he's an old man when I first started dating him. And uh, we just went from there. And he was in the Air Force at the time, and he was flying on a B-36 at the time. And he was in there for a four-year tour. And long towards the end of his tour, he decided that he wanted to be a pilot, which he, he had always loved flying and was in the process of getting a private pilot's license. And so he went ahead and took the, at that time, they had a cadet, a cadet training program. And that's the way you got into the pilot training. And he took the test and he passed the test. And uh, so he was due to uh, get out of the service. And so he was out for six months before uh, he had been, well, he'd been accepted into the pilot training program, but had to wait six months until his class was called up. So at that point, he came home to Littleton, Colorado, and he got himself a job in a, in a little plant there. I don't even remember what the what the plant uh, manufactured, but in the course of doing his, his job in the plant, he sat down, David was a, uh, uh, entrepreneur, I guess you would call him. He sits down and takes a bunch of toothpicks and glues them together and makes a working model to do his job. <laughs> and I, I said to him, I said, David, what are you doing that for? And he said, well, uh, it just seemed uh, that it was better that he had a machine do his job. And I said, yeah, but you won't have a job. Of course, he knew in six months he was leaving for pilot training anyway. So uh, in six months, he left for the pilot training and uh, went through that. And uh, was a year and, and I believe a half before he graduated. And he graduated in 56 uh, in October. I think it was like the 30th of October. And we had uh, met uh, or we had decided that we would get married. And so we had it all set up for the, the wedding and everything. And we hurried home from graduation and uh, got married on November the 3rd, 1956. And uh, had our little reception at his family's house, jumped in our car and headed south. We were headed to Phoenix, Arizona. That was his first uh, training base. And so we got caught in a snowstorm at Raton Pass. So we spent the first night, our wedding night, in, uh, in a snowstorm in Raton Pass. And then we made it on to, to uh, Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix, 
where we were there until like January. And then we went from there to Nellis Air Force Base for further training. And we were there for about six weeks. And then we headed to George Air Force Base. And George Air Force Base, he was uh, then uh, flew the F-100. And that's where we started our family. My, our first son, David Michael, was born uh, in, on September 10th, 1957. And so we were stationed at George for three years. That's uh, in California, correct? That's, that's Victorville, California, Victorville. Where, where George Air Force Base is. And uh, so we were there for three years, and, and David put in for several uh, overseas assignments, which, you know, we had Japan, and I don't remember all of them, and England, and uh, we got England. And so we left then in uh, 1960. We arrived in England, and we were there for three years where he flew the, the Voodoo, the 101. And uh, we lived on the economy, and uh, which I have to say, looking back, you know, it, it was a rough life because we didn't have central air conditioning. They had, uh, you heated your house with coal, and you heated your water with, with uh, what they call coke which was a um, fine, hot burning uh, fuel. And uh, so I was, I was really glad to get back to the United States with thermostat. And right. And you, and that was where he met Bob Dorton and the future congressman, right? So they well, were pilots together. In no, California? that was that we, we need to backtrack. He met Bob Dornan was in our squadron at George air force base. And uh, we were good friends with Bob and Sally. And so they flew the 100 together, and that's that's where he met Bob. And right, so and he kind of plays later on in the kind of narrative of uh, David's life as Bob Dornan, who was very really kind of a well-known figure in the 90s. Yeah, a prominent well, we, congressman. Yeah, he he went on to well, and while we were at Georgia Air Force Base, Bob was making the decision of whether he was going to stay in the military or he was going to go on. Uh, and get out. And so he got out and I used to go down and visit, visit them in LA when they first got out. And Bob was going around, you know, uh, to the different agencies looking for acting jobs and what have you. And so we didn't really see Bob or, you know, be in contact with him for the next several years until David got shot down. And then I got back in touch with Bob. But uh, when we when we got to England, we spent three years in England. And then we were transferred back to McConnell Air Force Base in Wichita, Kansas. And we arrived here in 1963. And uh, we um, rented a house off base because we didn't have base housing and what have you. And uh, David decided that uh, we, we needed to buy a house. So... Uh, we got involved in, in building a house and uh, it was on the street, just uh, the next street over from where we had rented. And so every day when David would come home from work, he would stop by and see the progress on the, the house. Well, if they started digging like in November, well, it would have been one of the wettest winters they had. So the basement kept filling up with water, so they'd have to pump it out, pump it out. So finally, they got it going after January, and uh, David, every day, he would go by and, and look at the house and what have you, and he left on April the 7th, 
and the house was just getting finished. And so it was, I think, three weeks before I moved into it. And I moved into it uh, you know, on, uh, oh, somewhere around the, after, well, after David left. He left on April 7th. April 7th, 1965. Right, 1965. And I moved in around May 1st, 1965. And because uh, I was in the new house when when they came to tell me David had gotten shot down. In fact, I was uh, in the process of planting a lawn the day they came to notify me that David had been shot down. And uh, right. And he only had very short notice. Like he said, well, I'm leaving for Vietnam in two days. Right. Yeah. The, they called us up. David's squadron was one of the first squadrons to be called uh, to go to Vietnam from McConnell Air Force Base. I don't know about the other bases around, but from our base. And, and we had two days notice. And so we were busy, you know, scrambling around trying to get uh, affairs in order and David to give me ideas of, of what I needed to do. And we had just uh, taken over the management of some property that I had in Montana, which was a ranch. And he had been doing all the taking care of it. So he knew what, what uh, leases were to be paid and what was to be done. And so I said to him, I said, well, what am I supposed to do with, <laughs> with the ranch? And he said, oh, just get the ledger book out and follow what I've done and you'll be fine. And so uh, then they, he had to get a power of attorney for me. And when he went in to get the power of attorney so that I could handle all of our business while he was gone, the uh, the lawyers at the base uh, told him, well, you just need a four-month um, power of attorney. David said, no. He says, I want a year's power of attorney. And they said, no, you don't want to give your wife a year's power of attorney. And David said, well, I want one. So they finally reneged, gave in and, and let him have his yearly power of attorney, which as it turned out, and it was a godsend in the in the end, I didn't know it at the time, but it would be. And uh, so, he, so he only wanted a four month because they didn't expect him to be gone that long, correct? Right. That see the the uh, lawyers for the for the base, I, I squadron, I guess would be what 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 the lawyer would be. He just advised all of the pilots to only give power of attorneys for as long as your tour was going to be, and their tour was supposed to be four months long. And uh, so that they, they argued that that's, that's all the longer you needed a power of attorney. But Right. And I think you wrote in the book, like the average pilot at that time, well, after a hundred missions, they were just sent back. So it was done. Right. right. Well, well, it went on the four month tour, but I, I think uh, that as some of them got towards their hundred hours, I don't know, you'd, you'd have to talk to some of the other pilots, but they, they went on tours, and just like when we were stationed at George, he went on a four-month tour to Spain, and they would periodically send them off to, like, Wheelis, uh, or, or, yeah, was it Wheelis Air Force in Africa, where they would send them on bombing uh, training things, and they'd go for four months or a month or two months, whatever whatever they decided to send them. So Vietnam was the same kind of a thing. It was going to be a four-month tour. And uh, after, as I assume, that the whole squadron would come back together after the four-month tour. Right. So he was there, but it took like six weeks. He had done 10 missions, and then 
kind of the fateful day, May 18th, 1965. Happened. Can you retell that story? Right. Uh, he was only there, you know, like you say, for uh, three weeks or something like, well, our first pilot got shot down May the 1st. Then the second pilot got shot down May the 9th. And David was the third one that got shot down May 18th. And so we lost, you know, three right off the bat. And uh, and then, uh, like I said, my my turmoil started from there. And uh, when they came to notify me, like I said, I was uh, busy with a with a crew of guys there that were planting my lawn. And when I looked out the window, I was on the phone to a friend of mine, an officer's wife as well, and we were chatting. And I looked out the window and I saw that blue staff car. And I knew I was the only military person on that street because we were in a civilian community. When I saw that blue staff car coming, I said to her, I said, I got to get off the phone. And so I hung up the phone and ran in the back and put on a house coat. And by that time they were ringing the doorbell. And so I get to the door and uh, I started shaking my head and backing up. And they said, oh, no, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. You know, we saw him walk away. And, and uh, of course, my, my biggest concern, David had a bad back. And so my concern always was if he ever had to bail out, would his back be able to withstand the pressure of the bailout? And so I always thought, you know, he'd, he'd possibly be crippled if he, if he bailed out. So when they said, oh, no, we, we saw him, they, they said that he walked away. And, and then uh, I thought, well, that was a good indication to me that he at least survived the bailout. And right. always- and the, when he was on his, sorry to interrupt, but when he was on his mission, there were other pilots who saw him jettison oh, yeah. out of the flaming plane Oh, and yeah. literally they were scoping around following him and said oh, that yeah. he was in the presence of other people. Oh, yes. Well, see, see, I didn't find all that stuff out until much later. And uh, when uh, I wrote to the squadron, uh, the individuals that were flying with David, I wrote letters to all of the, the well, three of his uh, uh, flight crew and ask for information. But you see, I didn't know any of this stuff in the beginning. They just told me that he had been captured and they didn't know whether it was by friendlies or unfriendlies. And by that, they meant that one village could be pro-American and the other village would be communist, just depending on what area you fell in. And so then later, of course, I found out all of the, 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 stuff about them, you know, circling and watching them because that came out when they said to me, then later, two weeks later, they came to me and they said, well, we don't know whether he was carried or he walked away. And then I was mad because they had told me, oh, he walked away. So in the beginning, I was thinking at least he, he made it out. Now they're telling me, well, we don't know whether he was carried or we don't know whether he walked. And and then they tell me, you know, that they were getting their information from the crew that circled while he was in this field. He was in a clearing. He landed in a clearing and uh, they couldn't tell. They said he was surrounded by, you know, several individuals, but they couldn't tell whether he was walking under his own uh, steam or whether they were carrying him. 
And right. And did you know at the time that he was involved in the secret war in Laos or was that also kept from me? Oh, that was that was kept from me. And, oh, and later so on, I mean, the, the, they called it the secret war in Laos, but yet it was all over the newspapers and what have you. And that was one of their, their things that they used on me earlier on was to keep my mouth shut because where he was shot down was a secret war and I shouldn't be, you know, saying anything to media or telling anybody where he had been shot down. Right. And, and that figures later on in the story. It's an important component. Oh yeah. Of, yeah. So and and the thing is that uh, they they got me from the very beginning because they would tell me, you know, you don't say anything, you don't get a hold of the media because you could get David killed. Well, it wasn't until many years later when I got involved in the POW issue, I found out that that was what they used against the POWs that returned. They told them, don't say anything about anybody else being left behind because you might get them killed. Well, now you look back on it, you see how the government started their little, uh, uh, what, what do you want to call it? Uh, Propaganda war against the American yeah, people or people who want and manipulation from the very beginning. And very they beginning. manipulated me. They manipulated the POWs that came back. And so anyway, so the story goes from, from there. I told them, I said, now, I want you to tell me everything, no matter how bad it is, I want to know everything that's going on. Well, then when I find out that they, they didn't know, well, you know, I, I, of course, the thing is, you have to understand that, that I was in a very high, um, oh, what, should we, what should we call it, level of, I just wanted to scream at everybody. And uh, so the poor guys that had to deal with me, I look back now and I feel sorry for them, but I was also, you know, trying to get information on my husband and I wasn't feeling very comfortable with what they were telling me, which, you know, they could only tell me what they knew. And as the years went by, I, I found out, you know, they, they had all kinds of reports that they never, ever told me about. Right. But, uh, and and I'm, I'm sure that they have a tough job handling, you know, uh, the loved ones when, when somebody gets shot down. And or killed or whatever, because we had, I, I have to say that the, one of the, the ladies in our squadron, in fact, her, uh, was Calva Wistrand, was her name, Bob Wistrand, was her husband, and he was the one that was shot down on May 9th. And uh, we, as, as the wives of the other officers, uh, spent two weeks with Calva because she was really distraught and we were very concerned about her health and uh, her mindset and so we we as uh, the well you considered yourself a family that the one thing that the that the u.s government did well uh is in the military you consider yourself a family and so you take care of, of each other and it's i don't know whether it's still that way today but you didn't believe and and david would have never in his wildest dreams believed that the us government would abandon him in captivity because he was certain that that if he was captured he was coming home and and, and you found evidence that he was alive after his capture right 
Oh yeah. Well, see the, the thing is this all came in and drips and dribbles along uh, a year later. Uh, the, the capture picture came out in the Denver post. Now you would think that the intelligence our our tell our intelligence, the U.S. intelligence, would be able to get the capture picture before it would hit the American papers, but they didn't. It came out in the paper. So when they came out in the paper, I called Casualty and I said, "What is going on here?" Oh well, uh, we'll we'll research that and find out what happened. So they found out that the that the picture had come from Pravda. So I told them, I said, I want that picture. So they sent me the picture. And as you can see in the capture picture, David's walking and doesn't seem to be injured, which, you know, that gave me some relief to see that. But that was a year after he'd been shot down. And I mean, I was constantly on the phone to casualty and asking, you know, what what's the newest information, which later. Can you explain to the audience what casualty is? And, uh, yeah, casualty was the was the group of people that were assigned to handle the family members, and it was uh, in uh, San Antonio at Randolph Air Force Base is where casualty headquarters are. So it's it's the U.S. Air Force casualty. They have the Army casualty, and they have Marines, and they have Navy casualty, and they handle the family members with information. And like, if you, if you needed something, if I needed a, a pass for my mother to go to the grocery store on the base, I could call casualty and they would take care of it. And so they basically were our handlers is what they were. Yeah. They were supposed to be assisting you, but uh, they were right. So there wasn't always benign, right? Well, as I found out later, what the, what the head uh, casualty guy told me many, many years, this back in 1990, he tells me, he said, well, the Air Force was at the bottom of the totem pole as far as information that the CIA and the DIA and all of the government agencies decided what information they would give to casualty which I was, of course, at the bottom of the totem pole. I'm, I'm blaming casualty because they're not giving me all the information. But casualty isn't getting all the information either. And so they can only give me what they got, which I didn't understand at the time. And so uh, they, they were the ones that I would deal with. If I had any problems, I would call casualty. But you have to understand that I would be dealing with a, a young airman that was probably 20 some years old and he was only getting information that was given to him by his, uh, uh, person. It's like a bureau. Yeah. It's a bureaucratic nightmare, but it's yeah. intentionally designed that way. I would say exactly. to put it. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. so basically what the, what the, the central intelligence agency and the defense intelligence agency, they don't give air force casualty all of the information. And so they're they're in the dark as much as I am, which right. I didn't realize all this until many years later. Right. And so. Please continue. Please continue. OK, so uh, anyway, I get the I get the picture casualty or the the, the capture picture and <clears throat> which made me feel somewhat better. But the, the uh, casualty isn't getting any more information. And I would 
bug them, you know, daily as to what was. And as like I said, as years went by, I realized now they weren't being given any information. So it goes along there. And uh, well, maybe we can talk just to, sorry to interrupt, but we can also talk about how the POW issue was a central part in the peace agreements of 72. So David, your husband, was also kind of a pawn in these negotiations between the United States Kissinger and North Vietnam and kind of got left out in the mix. Can you talk about that? Okay, well, uh, I didn't realize all this was going on when, uh, of course, they, they would, well, first, let's back up. What their casualty would do is they would call me and they'd say, well, a POW died. He was shot. Well, we don't know whether it was David or it was Shelton because there was a guy by the name of Shelton that was shot down uh, in May, in April before David. And so David and Shelton were two POWs in Laos. So the U.S. government was saying there were only two POWs in Laos. Now we're talking 60, 68, 69, 70 in that, in that time frame. And so as they're, they're uh, saying these things, then they would call me. And as I look back now, they were, they were preparing me or, or whatever you want to call it, uh, working on my mind that David is dead. And so in 68, they tell me, well, a pie, or, uh, one of the, the captives died of malnutrition. Well, the other one was shot by a guard. And so it went on like that for the, the next eight years. And so I, of course, thought in 1973, when they started the Paris Peace Accords, I thought, okay, now we're going to find out, you know, what actually happened. Little did I know that Kissinger had made a deal with Vietnam to consider that there were only nine POWs in Laos and that they had all been returned. Well, the nine POWs that they were considering uh, the Laotian prisoners were captured in Laos, but they were never held in Laos. They were captured in Laos, brought up the Ho Chi Minh Trail and held in Vietnam. But Kissinger, rather than dealing with the Laotians, which the Laotians had told them early on in their papers, it says, we will not release our POWs through Vietnam. So Kissinger had a problem. He had to solve the, the prisoners in Laos. So the way he did it is he got Lee Doc To to, to agree that they, they would consider those nine POWs the prisoners from Laos. And so that's when David got written off. And so, but the casualty called me when, when 1973, uh, when they were, they were talking about the POWs coming home, the casualty called me and they said, this is just a little glitch. We've got a problem. David's not going to be one of the ones coming home. Right. There were like 500 or 600 of them coming back, right? Five, five, 591. But they were released from Vietnam. And of course, I didn't know the distinction between 
POWs. I didn't know we had Laotian POWs and we had Vietnamese POWs. Right, which was supposed to be a secret war, right? So right. that was how right Kissinger right. kind of cleaned that up, right? Yeah, and so so I'm I'm just expecting that you know that all the prisoners are are being returned. So of course Nixon gets on TV then and states that all of the POWs have been returned. And so I called casualty and they said, oh, no, he said that that's just uh, uh, the statement that he made that we're still working on it. And we're still trying to find out what happened to David. And so it goes along. It is, isn't until many years later when I was up at the Senate Select Committee hearings that I found documents that, you know, explained what actually went on during the peace accords and all that stuff. And right. And, and there was, they paid for the PA, POWs, right? Part of the reparations was right. for, for release but, of POWs, and then they got the Nobel Peace Prize. So right. they all kind of washed their hands and took all the accolades. Yeah, basic, basically what it was, was that's what the Laotians told them, told Nixon and, or Kissinger, is that they, the POWs wouldn't be released until they got repatriations for them. Reparations, reparations, I'm sorry. And so... Uh, uh, Kissinger never included the Laotians in the Paris peace uh, um, talks. And if you go through history and, and look at what Kissinger did, the Vietnamese got absolutely everything they asked for. We got nothing of what we wanted out of that uh, Paris peace accords. And so. And you kind of became joined up activism in what you kind of still see around today, this this concept of the PO, MAA, POW uh, well, movement for you. Not not really. You see, I was I was a government pawn, you might say, because I believed in the government and I believed in the military. And when I saw these people marching in the streets and what have you, the, the protesters and what you what have you, I thought that was terrible. You know, just leave the government alone. They're gonna get the answers. I was still believing in my government and i believed in my government until 1990 if that's that's um, possible to believe because i thought they were really doing the job i thought they were really doing the investigation to find out what happened to david and i never thought for one minute that they would go off and leave these men in captivity never did i think that and so, you know, them planting the seed that David died, well, of course, in 73, then I start thinking there's a possibility David's dead. David didn't make it and that that's why they're not bringing him home. So I evolved and, and I used to think, you know, that it was terrible that the POW community was fighting the government so badly. Looking back, I, I can't believe how stupid and naive I was. And I should have been out there marching in the streets, but I was like, the, oh, you got to be quiet because you're going to cause a problem and you got to do what the government's telling you to do. And I mean, I look back now and I think, oh, my gosh, how could you be so naive? But I was because I didn't have any documents and they didn't give me any information. And you said you read a book called Kiss the Boys Goodbye. That was influential in your thinking. Can you talk yeah. about that book and how it opened your eyes to certain things? Well, yeah, that was quite a ways down the road. They they called me in 77 and said they're going to declare David dead. And I said, well, I said, what what evidence do you have that he died? 
And they said, well, we don't have any evidence that he died, but we haven't heard anything about him for uh, years. So we're going to declare him dead. Well, they said, unless you have something. And I said, well, how could I have something? I said, I don't have access to any intelligence. Well, as the years went by, that was when uh, Carter signed the, uh, I don't know what it was called, signed the paperwork that, that basically was going to kill off all, they called it the presumptive finding of death. And that's what, what Carter signed. And that that put the nail in the coffin for all of our men that were left behind. And so then I, I, as I moved forward, I, you know, went on with my life. I remarried and I was living uh, in Conway Springs and uh, I'm watching uh, the Joan Rivers show, which I never watched the Joan Rivers show. But anyway, on the Joan Rivers show, here's Marion Shelton and Ann Holland, two POW wives. And they start talking about this book, Kiss the Boys Goodbye. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And, and the, the more they talked, and I thought, I got to get to town and get that book. So I called my local little bookstore and uh, got the book. And when I started reading that book, it was just like I was telling you, they started telling me that David died in 68. And they did the same thing to those to the returned POWs, don't talk about the secret war in Laos. They did the same thing to me, don't talk about the secret war in Laos. They played us like a fiddle, and which the government's good at what they do. And uh, they're stall and deny and lie, and, and uh, so they are good at what they do. But anyway, I got the book, and then's when I started my activism. I was mad as hell, as the old saying went. And I couldn't believe that I had been lied to for all these years. And that's when I decided in 1990, I started writing Freedom of Information Act uh, requests and started trying to find out what actually did happen to David. And I started going to Washington, D.C. and networking with the, the family members up there. And John Labutelier was one of the, the instrumental guys in helping me navigate the Washington, D.C. bureaucracy. And uh, when I found out how many people out there actually were in the same situation that I was in, I was shocked because, you know, I, I truly believe the government was doing their job. But not only did uh, they not do their job, but there were cases of men that I'm sure were probably CIA that were shot down, that the family members would be asking for information and the U.S. government would deny that there's any information on the individual. Well, how they got around that is, say that the pilot was sent off to Area A and he got shot down in Area A, but on paper, he was in B, in Area B. So they could deny the family the information because they weren't asking for the correct uh, shoot down. And so as, as I got involved in the, in the POW issue, then I started seeing all of these families that were having difficulty, the same difficulty I was having is getting information because of course where, where my information is, is in the CIA and the CIA doesn't give up their information. 
In fact, Roger Hall has a lawsuit against the CIA. He's a researcher that filed a lawsuit against the CIA trying to get documents. And he's still fighting in court to get these documents. And as I was told by an attorney a long time ago, he said, well, the government, they'll get you into court. Then they'll just stall you and try to run you out of money. So my activism really started in 1990. And then the Senate Select Committee hearings came along. And what, so, what year was that? What year was the Senate Select Committee hearings? 1992. And so we really thought the POW community really thought that they were going to do an honest investigation. And at the time, Kerry was the, the chairman and uh, Bob Smith was vice chairman from New Hampshire, Senator Smith. And so we really thought things were going to, to really open up. And, and when it first started out, it started in, I think, uh, January, February of 92. <clears throat> On the first few hearings that we watched, it looked like Kerry was really going to do a job. And he was, he was a former prosecutor. He was really going to get to the bottom of this. And so he was really tough on, on uh, some of the government witnesses. But you could watch as the, the hearing went on. It went on for a year. As the hearing went on, you could see him turning, actually turning, and, and actually not doing the job. And, and I, well, I liken it to you saw on his face, oh, my God, there is something here. And how am I going to cover this up? That's that's the feeling I got from what what transpired. And so uh, then uh, they they had government witnesses. I mean, I sat there and watched these government witnesses lie under oath, time and time again. And but the the thing is, I found out later that anybody, they never get busted for perjuring in Congress. You can no, lie no. to Congress all the time or in any hearing. Oh yes. And not only that, but but see, the thing is that these people that work in these government agencies, uh, like the DPMO, which is the Department of POW-MIA, under the umbrella of the Defense Department, they are allowed to do anything. They, they are not accountable for anything. I, I believe they could commit murder and they wouldn't be held uh, accountable. And uh, it, it's a blanket. It's a blanket. Uh, what should we say? Blanket immunity. Yeah, a blanket immunity, a blanket immunity. So as as they would sit there and and tell these lies, I mean, I I would sit there and I'd think, what the heck is going on here? And I kept saying to myself, what has happened to the POWs? Why aren't they looking for the POWs? And finally, one day I was sitting there and I was asking myself the question, why aren't they looking for the POWs? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. They aren't looking because they know where they are. And that then I started seeing the pattern of, of what they were doing. And so I had friends that in the POW community that, that showed me how to go to the Library of Congress and, and, you know, look for documents. So what I decided myself was that the U.S. government painted the family members as a bunch of distraught people that couldn't accept reality. And so I thought, I'm going to start finding documents and I'm going to use their documents to fight against them. 
And so I went to the Library of Congress, and, and this was way before computer and all this stuff. They had these reels, and you actually had to sit there and put this on a reel and actually turn the reel, slowly going through document that microfilm <laughs> copies or whatever. Yeah. Yes. And so I'm and, and I was told by some of the family members, they said, now when you're looking for documents, you got to look at the handwriting in the in the pair in the uh, margins, because that's where the important information is going to be. So I I'm spinning this reel and spinning this reel. All of a sudden I come across this word hot written in great big letters up in the corner of this document. So I get, I go to reading the document and on this document, it's 1984 and they are tracking POWs through Laos. They are talking 23 POWs in Laos. Well, see up until this time, U.S. government was telling me there were only two POWs in all of Laos, and that was Herdlicka and Shelton. And so I went, well, who the heck are these guys? If David and Shelton are the only two POWs, who are these 23 POWs? Well, that answered my question because now I knew that they had been tracking them. Well, now, the, the other thing is you have to realize is they they have a real neat way of keeping information from you in that if they put a report out and it, they say we're talking about two POWs in northern Laos in the Sam Nua area, but they don't put a name on that document. They don't have to give that to me. If they put David's name on that document, then they have to give that document to me. So I realized that is how they kept this whole thing under wraps all these years because they would just put a POW or 10 POWs or five POWs. So they didn't have to pass that information on to the families. Right. That's a trick they do in a lot of those administrative agencies that they don't name names or misspell names so that you can't even search them. Right. So that's a, that's a shame. Yeah. Well, there was actually one kind of moment of truth in your book. You include the Peck. Uh, statement from the DIA where he just said this this whole thing is a, a bunch of baloney. Can you talk about the Peck uh, resignation? Yes, uh, the Peck was the good guy. I mean, he went in there with the, well, in fact, during Colonel Peck's time in the DPMO is the only time I ever received a live sighting report was during his time in there. And no, he, he got in there and he saw all of this stuff that I'm talking about, the debunking and, and uh, everything going on in there and the fact they're not giving the families the information. And he went in there with the idea that he was going to give us the information and had several family members, you know, where he did help them get information. And like I said, I think my report came from that time frame too. But as soon as... Ann Mills Griffith, who is the National League of Families, as soon as she realized what was going on, then she started beating the drum to get him out of there. And he just got sick and tired of all of the, the uh, skullduggery going on. And the, because he went in with the idea that he was going to help the family members get the information. And yeah. it's just like any government agency, you know, when, when they don't want you to do something, they're going to block you at every corner. 
And that's what they did. And, and he went in there with the idea he was going to solve it. So he just nailed his resignation to the door and walked away. Yeah. And then they put somebody more pliable in there, Trowbridge. And I think he said, Peck wrote, like, everyone's expendable. Like, it just, was, it just wasn't legit at all. No, no, it's not. But Trowbridge was only in there for a, a short period of time. He was in there until they found somebody. And we've had, I, I can't even tell you how many people were in there in, in DPMO as the head guy. But the, the policy, see, the whole thing, the whole POW issue goes to policy. Okay, in 1973, when Nixon came on TV and said all of our POWs were home, he put the policy in place. So every agency in the government is now going to have to abide by the policy. There are no POWs. So all of the information that comes into this DPMO, which is under the Defense uh, Department's umbrella, to handle the family members. So when, when a report lands on their desk, that says there is a man alive in Laos, their, their job is to debunk it, to make it not be true, make it go away. As, as my son said, mom, when they drop the rattlesnake on the desk, they have to deal with it. And so that's what's going on. And I didn't realize that either. I, I thought, you know, that they were really going to try to do something. But and and the bureaucracy, you can't you can't win against the government. They have an unlimited uh, bank account and everybody has to follow the policy. So when the policy is put in place, you have to follow the policy. Do you have any idea other than your husband, how many other POWs you think were left in Vietnam after 1973? Well, I, I've tried to figure this out. And this is an, another thing the government does really good. And that's they juggle numbers and they try to, to mix up numbers. I'm going to go on the fact that they, they had the, um, the Moose document, which was an American document. And it was a, a, a report done by Moose. And, and I don't remember what his, his title was or anything. And he said that there were possibly 1,300 left. Then, uh, and I was trying to think the name of the, of the other report that was found. You remember the 1205 document that was found in Russia where they're talking the, the Vietnam yeah. yes. Bureau? Yep. Yeah, Yeltsin said something about that. I think you met with Loboda. Is that his name? Or is no, that a different document? No, that's a different one. Uh, the 1205 document, I was trying to think uh, what the guy's name was that found it. Anyway, he found it in the archives in, in Russia. And it is stating that the Politburo of Vietnam stated that they had 1205. Okay, now you take the 1,205 and the 13, that's very close. We have our document says 13, their document says 1,205. That's very close. Now, my question has always been, and I don't understand, is whether the Laotian POWs were considered in the 1,205 or they were separate because Nixon stated in one of his uh, documents that there were 317 POWs in Laos. 
So I don't know whether those 300, so that's the thing, you know, they manipulate the numbers so you don't really know. And later on in Moore's uh, deposition, he was talking about the fact that they were expecting waves of 500 POWs. So the, the first 591 was supposed to be the first wave. So if you take that and you say that there were probably two or three more waves, then all of those numbers are very similar. But I still don't know whether the, the there were over 500 men, I think, shot down in Laos. And so I don't know whether the 317 that Nixon was talking about is in the 1205 or the 1300. I don't know. Right. But I mean, it's just a substantial number that's left after. And like you said, the policy is very important. There's no war in Laos. That's the policy. Correct. There's no more POWs. That's the policy. And a lot of those functionaries and those administrative bodies and the bureaucrat, bureaucrats just do what they're told. And the people, Americans, I don't see, they don't get how compliant those bureaucracies are. And that, you're right, they're just glacial. They don't even move. They deny stuff. They know what they're doing. But uh, you've also traveled to Russia. You've been to Vietnam with Muhammad Ali. You've been to the White House. So you've definitely, you know, been through a lot of halls of uh these places on the different transnationally, right? Right. Well, the, the trip to Russia was probably one of the uh, uh, most outstanding in David's case, because I met with uh, the Russian correspondent's wife that actually interviewed David a couple times in captivity in the Sam Nua area. And she gave me one of uh, her husband's articles and in that article, well, first of all, I need to back up and say the U.S. government stated that David died in 1968 and he, he died of either malnutrition or uh, a gunshot. So that was their date. And, and I had to, to pin them down before I went to, to Russia. I pinned them down to give me the exact date that they think that David Herdlicka died because one time they would say he died in 66. Then a report would show up that he was alive in 67. Well, no, he died in 67. Well, then a report would show up he was alive in 68. So I finally, it took me five years to get them pinned down to a date before I went to Russia. And they finally said that in their view, David died in 1968 from malnutrition. So when I go to Russia and I meet with Mrs. Shedroff and she gives me this article and I bring it back and uh, the, the guy that, that took us over there, Paul Reef, he was fluent in Russia, in Russian. So when I got back, the article was written in Russian. So I told him, I said, I want you to go through and translate this document for me before I send it to DPMO. And so he did, because I wanted to make sure that they were going to translate it correctly. So when I sent it in, I already had the translation. And so they send me a letter back and they say, oh, my goodness, this is a substantial report. And oh, this is. And so uh, they're going to do their investigation. OK, well, in this in this article, there were three Russian correspondents at this hotel friendship in Sam Nua, Laos. 
and it was a press conference that was held. And that and David, they brought David into this press conference where he spoke in front of the press conference. And so I knew when they said he spoke, I said, they're going to say that that was a recording and David wasn't there, that that was just a recording made. And so uh, it went along there and they sent me this notice that this is this is a substantial lead and so on and so forth. So there were three correspondence. One was named Laboda, and I don't remember the other one's name, and Shedra. And the third one had gone to a Kazakhstan and was now in Kazakhstan at this time. Laboda had, had migrated to uh, Israel, and so they, they could talk to, to Laboda. And so it goes along there for probably a year before I got the the uh, outcome of their investigation. And the outcome of their investigation was there were two correspondents that stated David was at that press conference and there was one correspondent that couldn't remember it and they were going with the one that couldn't remember it. And that was the end of their investigation. And just so, excruciating to read all of those, those so many times that you contacted them and just got that stone. Well, that, the thing is that the sad part is when I would catch somebody in, in the government in one of those hearing rooms and I would ask them about, let's say I ask them about this document or I ask them about 23 POWs in Laos and they say, well, there's no such thing. And I hand them the report and I say, here, here is your report. That states that there are 23 POWs in all in Laos. And they just look at me. They wouldn't give me an answer. They just look at you. And it was so frustrating because I kept thinking that in, in all of my trips to Washington, I was going to run across somebody that had integrity, that had some power in the government, that actually would see that, that this was a terrible injustice and that they would figure out a way to get these men released. Because let's face it, if you have a problem, you sit down and you look at all of the avenues and the government could have put a spin on this POW issue at any time. In fact, when, when Yeltsin was coming over here and he said Russia held POWs, that would have been the perfect outlet for the U.S. government to say, oh my goodness, you've had the POWs all this time. Everybody could have saved face. We could have got out of it uh, unscathed. But no, what does the U.S. government do? Their first thought is lie and deny. And that's what they do time and time again. And I just find it despicable that there is nobody that had the guts to step up to the plate and get these men rescued. Yeah, I was surprised that McCain was an obstructionist too, like you tagged him as somebody unhelpful, as somebody who was a POW. So it's just really just this going, uh, banging your head up against this wall of Washington. So it's well, really- the, the sad part is McCain had an opportunity during the Senate Select Committee hearings to really step up and really become the hero that everybody says he is, but he is not. Uh, and and bring these men home but i i have to say i think that mccain was compromised i think that that his his years of captivity he was held by 
uh, a Russian doctor in contact with a Russian doctor and a Vietnamese nurse for a long period of time before he was ever put into the to the regular prison system, as you would say. And so I, I think that in my mind, they turned him. And so, because I, I watched him in Washington and anything the Vietnamese wanted, he would diligently work to try to get it for him. And so I can't understand if you were in a prison system and someone tortured you, when you got out, would you be friends with them? I don't think so. And so I, I think that, that he had an opportunity that, that he just let get away. And uh, he, he felt guilty about it because he, he was very uncomfortable around family members. If he'd see us, he'd turn around and go the other way in the hallway. And uh, so. Well, Carol, this has been a great discussion. We're at about an hour. Is there anything I miss? Anything you'd like to add before we wrap up the interview? No, the, the book is going to be coming out, I hope, in a month's time. And uh, I have a web page at powherdlicka.com where they can go and actually see all the documents and uh, that, that it's not me telling this stuff, that there is proof. And can you spell out that uh, website, please? Yes, it's powherdlicka, H-R-D-L-I-C-K-A. Com. And this has been Carol Herdlicka discussing her upcoming book, Finding David, an American Wife Betrayed by Her Government. Thank you so much. Well, thank you.